0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations Podcast. On today's episode, I am joined by debut author Holly Ringland. Holly's novel is The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, and it's a beautiful evocation of land and heart. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Together we explore books, writing, and literary culture, and we share stories and issues that make our world tick, getting behind the scenes and talking to the creators. In Great Conversations, I get to bring you more of these discussions and help you discover the best of Australian writing. The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart explores a young girl's experience of early tragedy and loss, and how this shapes her as she grows into adulthood. Weaving itself through the Australian landscape, Alice explores the mystery of native flora and creates a wonderful language that allows her to express herself even when there are no words. Right now I'm joined on the phone from a very cosy setting about an hour inland from Brizzy, tucked up round a fire. Holly Ringland is on the phone to discuss her debut novel The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. Holly, welcome, uh, well, welcome Fireside to (laughs) 2SER.
1: Hi, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. It's
0: so lovely. You've totally got a little rug over your lap in my idea. Sort of, <laughs> this is like fireside chats with, was it FDR? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, let's go with a rug. Yep. Let's go with a rug, yep. And rug boots and, you know, all the rest of it. I'm taking the opportunity to be... Um, somebody who gets cold in 20 degrees while I can, before I go back to England where it is 20 degrees in summer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And we I've already told you I'm excited to talk about The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart because we ran into each other at the Sydney Writers' Festival and I studiously avoided asking all the questions that I wanted to save for today.
1: I think we both did very well avoiding any topics of stories, writing and books. Especially because there were flutes of bubbly and beers
0: involved. Mm, exactly, yeah. Well but we might have to situate this for the listener. If uh, if you've been in a bookstore lately, The Lost Flowers mm-hmm. of Alice Hart is the absolutely gorgeous floral embossed edition that you have probably seen jumping off a shelf mm-hmm. at you. Aww. But if uh, if you would like also to know a little bit about the story, we meet our titular character Alice as a child. She lives with her family in a seaside village, where the family farm the family have carved out a seemingly idyllic existence on the land. Alice loves her mother, but is perplexed by her father's moods. And as is so often, I guess, the way with children, Alice just doesn't really have the experience or perspective to understand what's happening in her family. Oh. Following a tragic fire, Alice must leave the town and travel inland to live with her heretofore unknown grandmother, June. June's farm, Thornfield, is a home for women with nowhere else to go, and Alice soon falls into the rhythms of nurturing the exotic native flowers that the women are famed for. Under June's tutelage and care, Alice slowly recovers from her trauma and comes to know the legacy of the flowers in their secret language. But June is also harbouring a secret that she will do anything to keep, lest she lose her granddaughter's love. Um, I've and I've barely even covered a third of the book there, Holly. Uh, so let's <laughs> let's jump right in. We meet. Mm, let's do it. We meet Alice through key periods of her life, beginning yeah. as a girl. Sort of, it's it's kind of a farm type property. Uh, it's very it's very much sort of situated at any time. I don't didn't have a strong sense of whether this was the past or the present uh, yeah. as we began, mm. and she's really struggling to understand her parents' relationship. Mm. Did you begin, though, at this point with this kind of complete sense of the character of Alice from that young age, or did it emerge for you in the writing?
1: No, Alice arrived, you know, like I've wanted, you know, as we may have talked about and then avoided talking about <laughs> because we strayed into conversations about writing at the pub, mm. as you do at Sydney Rides Festival. Um, I've wanted to be a writer since I was three, and um, I ached and yearned and pined and dealt with the self-doubt and the loathing and the fear sort of all my life, wondering how to find my voice, write real characters, and the irony being that when I was 33 and I started writing this novel, I, don't, I think if someone had told me a year before I started writing the first draft that Alice Hart, my main character, would arrive fully formed with a voice of her own, I just wouldn't have believed them because that just didn't feel like it could possibly be true for me because of how much I was pining to find my own writerly voice and to find a vivid character. But then I think the thing that's really interesting as a writer is that all of that pining and thinking and daydreaming and mental work that I did for years and years and years, I think that's probably what enabled Alice as a character to arrive fully formed. Mm -hmm. Um, She, you know, I, I I sat down, when this book sort of officially started, I'd done quite a bit of um, mental prep. I'd done daydreaming. I knew her name was Alice Hart. I had an idea that she was a child. But when it came time, when I was ready to start writing, I went into my office and I picked up my pen and took a deep breath and, you know, it had sort of been maybe six to nine months leading up to this of daydreaming and thinking about it and writing other things, but I wrote the first line of this book and it has never changed. And in writing that first line, Alice Alice had, she just, it was that debut. She just had arrived. She'd come out of those shadows and Alice was here. And um, I sort of just stayed really close to her from then and her voice just seemed... Her voice and her perceptions were vivid and concrete right from the beginning, which still boggles me to, to this day.
0: <laughs> I think you've also just uh, written the first scene of your biopic. Um, <laughs> when we we we're going to put you in a we're going to put you in a cabin near a lake, and
1: okay,
0: there will literally be characters sort of emerging from your pen. Oh,
1: brilliant! I love it. I want to go and see that. <laughs> yes,
0: please. Now there is this incredible beauty throughout the Lost Flowers. It was forever charged with the violence that Alex, Alice, Alice experiences. <laughs> Trying to read Alice experiences comes out as Alex. There
1: we go, Alex. I mean, one and the same. Mm. It all works. It all works. Reader interpretation, Andrew. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, this incredible beauty throughout The Lost Flowers is forever charged with the violence that Alice experiences from a young age. Mm. Um. And that is, that is something I think a lot of people also struggle with in their own lives. Mm. Now, we don't have to get personal here because we really want to talk about this book, but how does, at least in the sense of a story, how does violence drive a story and a life in a story? Yeah,
1: so that's a really good question. Um, and, you know, to a certain point, I don't mind getting personal about, about this because I don't know how to talk about this novel and I don't want to talk about this novel without talking about where it comes from, because I think it's really important that it's talked about. And what I'm meaning is, you know, the genesis of Lost Flowers was trauma. Up until about 10 years ago, I lived most of my life with male-perpetrated violence in varying relationships with men in my life. And, you know, I mentioned earlier I've wanted to be a writer since I was three. As anybody who has suffered any kind of trauma, which we do suffer being human, um, as anyone will know, trauma that's unacknowledged, unaddressed and unspoken of, it really takes, well, at least in my personal experience, it. I was too busy just trying to get by and trying to be happy to find the courage to to actually... Embrace the power of my voice and and following my dreams of being a writer. Um, there was so much that I, I couldn't look at in my own psyche because um, that's what you have to do when you're a writer, you know? Um, and to write this novel, I had to go into the sore place, which I got great courage to do by finding... Uh, work by an American novelist named Tom Spanbauer. He sort of develops this very deliberate and unflinching writing concept called dangerous writing, which he calls the act of using fiction as the lie that tells the truth truer. To paraphrase him, and the thing that I wanted to explore in this novel, which is why we meet Alice when she's nine, and we leave her when she's twenty-nine is the long shadow that trauma casts on our lives. It's not neat, you know? And it's always tra- traumatic experience or violence, how that affects us. It's always there. It's, it never goes away. It becomes different versions of itself over time, perhaps in our life, depending on the work that we do to live with it. But it's not something that we can erase. It's something I think that we grow around, and it becomes a part of us to whatever effect we choose and enable it to become. I I couldn't have written this book the way I've written it if I wasn't drawing it from my sore place, and that's I guess the irony, isn't it? Mm. Um. And in terms of you know how does violence drive story and how does it shape story? I think it's the The act is one thing, the effect is another. And I think something that is true for me and something that is true for Alice Hart, certainly, is um, Renee Brown, the American researcher. She does a lot of work in shame and researching shame and the enormous effect, crippling effect, that shame has on our lives. uh, Because it stops us from becoming who we might fully want to be. Shame keeps us pretty small. And she, she sort of said something to the effect of, if you if you or we don't own our stories, they will own us. And as you know, I've just finished a six-week tour around Australia and I've sort of shared this story about where this book comes from in me along the way because I think it's so imperative that we talk about it. Um, and people are really beautiful at the end of events. I, I think, you know, we want the best for each other ultimately and people have sort of said to me at events okay you've written this book you've gone into the sore place you've done the dangerous writing are you better now like are you healed and I think that's what we want is to know that that we can get past suffering but I don't know um, if I'm healed I don't know if you ever heal from trauma I, I think maybe truer is that you can recover maybe um, but I certainly feel like I own my story now let's, rather than it owning
0: me. Let's talk a little bit more about that then because you, you made a, a comment before about Alice's, Alice's truth may not be true to everyone, but you actually include so many stories um, in in vignette or even in glances. Mm. When Alice goes to the farm, June has her own history. We meet Twig mm. and Candy. Um even even Ruby, when she uh, when when Alice sort of moves on, and there are huge tracks of the story that we've barely touched on, and each of them mm. have their own story. It also connects, I guess, uh, particularly uh, to, in the later parts of the book, to I guess a deeper trauma of dispossession of land, mm. and mm. and I mean, really, this is like this is a, an ongoing debate. This idea of dispossession of land, this, the stealing of land, mm. and maybe. Uh, healing, reparation is, maybe that isn't possible, but moving on, was it Was it important for you? Were you including these characters so that it wasn't just one person's story, despite the fact that Alice carries the narrative?
1: Definitely. Um, to, to, to write such a big story, it needed to be pulled through just one person's main lens, which is why Alice is the main character. But there are, like, at, you know, as you know, it's a third person, sort of omniscient narrator that goes and sits on the shoulders of different characters so that you can see the same moment sometimes from different perspectives. Mm. And different characters know different things that are going on that other characters don't know. So you can see different angles of, like, the one story. And I think the main message there. Um, in me, in my heart, when I was writing this is to to just embrace and encompass the fact that everybody has a story. Mm. You know stories are all that we really have in our life in, that, that you know we really can control there 's so much out of our control, and that was sort of something really deliberate where I wanted to make every character that is on the page as vivid as possible. And if I don't go into what their story is, to at least invite the reader to think, God, I wonder what, I wonder what your backstory is. I wonder what your tale is. You know, like even, even the very sort of distant character Merle who owns the pub in Agnes Bluff. Like, I loved writing her. You know, and I, I sometimes wonder, God, I wonder what you ended up... I wonder how you ended up out there, Merle. Like, what's your story? <laughs> um, and it was also really important to me that this was not a whitewashed Australia that I was writing. Um, to embed a story in Australian landscapes and include Australian flora, it was an essential responsibility to me that I felt, particularly after I lived in the Territory for four years um, and worked on Aboriginal land and worked with Aboriginal people and shared knowledge and stories, that, that the stories and the people that are in this novel are at least to me... Um, and, you know, hopefully for everyone, an accurate representation of, of what it means to be in Australia as an Australian, mm. which you- is why there are folklore stories and culture from, for example, India and Bulgaria and Mexico, and then, of course, you know, Indigenous stories and, and that sort of thing, um, because they're all Australian and make up what, it, what Australia is.
0: And you worked with a cultural advisor, didn't you, On in in actually crafting parts of the book? What was that process like?
1: I didn't... I mean, I consulted, like, one of my dear friends, Ali Cobbie who is the one of our very well-decorated um, Australian poets. She's a mm. Yankanjara woman, and uh, we, know, we know quite a lot of the same friends and people out in the desert, and... Uh, I talked to her about fictionalising an Indigenous landscape rather than writing one that exists, because to do that would be telling stories that aren't mine to tell. Mm. And Ali, Ali said to me, you know, I think that's very wise. And I was like, right. Um, but I worked, uh, I worked in the desert for four years and I really drew on um, my personal experience living and working with people in the desert to write those parts of the book and it felt like something that I could do to give back in a sense after my time there was to bring light and story and um you know some some humanizing of story to that part of the novel, indeed. Just to just to give it the same act of love that I did the rest of the rest of the book and everybody that's in it.
0: Mm. Mm. I wanna um I want to take a moment to maybe shine a little bit of light, though, on The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, because we have talked so much about the trauma that informed the novel and that is explored. Um, it would be easier for a listener, I think, to to miss the incredible beauty that just is interweaved throughout The Lost Flowers. And, I mean, one huge aspect of that uh, is the incredible, vivid job you do creating um, the farm, and the flowers that are I guess it, it is famous for, and also mm. the language of the flowers that yeah. I mean it opens each chapter, you enshrine it in this dictionary of flowers that Alice ca- carries with her, and it becomes this really important language. I've got so many questions, so why don't I just give you a really open one what What did you want from the flowers, and what were you exploring there?
1: What I wanted from the flowers was to hopefully honour and capture a bit of nature's magic, the weird, quirky, glorious beauty of our Australian flora, the fact that it can bloom in the harshest of conditions to still, you know, such beautiful effect And all of that I wanted to use as a way to illuminate and explore, I guess, the idea that, even if we can't use our voices and we stay audibly silent about the things that are too hard to speak or the things that hurt or the things that are too scary to say out loud, we still we still generally seem to find a way to express the burden of those unspoken things. Even if it's by living you know, and this is not like a positive thing, but if we if we don't tell our stories if we don't express our emotions if we don't talk about the things that have happened to us or the things that we feel they will you know like I think twig says this quite a bit to jean about the past and secrets they will start to grow internally in our lives those things that we don't say and they will start to run rampant and overtake how we live our lives because it's such a burden I think it was Maya Angelou, I think, that said that there's no burden like an untold story carrying an untold story inside of us. So I wanted to use the flowers as a way to really illuminate that, as a way to bring beauty and a little bit of magic to the things both beautiful and unbearable that we can and can't say, to that motif and idea of how powerful and disempowering our voice or lack of can be on our lives, does that
0: make sense it does it does yeah, and you great. you had me think about thinking about how i mean unfortunately so many of of these ideas are are only very recently emerging we 're seeing the importance of things like the Royal Commission into child abuse um, mm. witnessing people 's stories the 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 tragically ignored call from the uluru statement from the heart uh, mm. for something like a macarada, um, but then even I- we understand in our own lives how important it is to to connect, mm-hmm. uh, and I guess the other side of that is not just to tell your story but to actually have it heard. Mm. Do the flowers give something to that because, I mean, they really, they're a secret language mm. that is very powerful and that can that it's completely unmissable. It's You mm. can't shut your ears to the flowers and they, they mm. contain so many depths. What, <laughs> what did, you, what did you, you have in mind for the story, not just to be told but to be heard?
1: I think the whole, I think the driving force behind writing this novel was following one girl from nine through to adulthood, to explore and observe what becomes of her in her silence and then finding her voice and then really learning what it means to use it and to own it. And in Alice's life, it's the flowers that connect her to all... It's the flowers are the anchor that connects her to her nine-year-old self to her seventeen-year-old self, and to herself at twenty-nine, at the end of the novel, um, and that's the that's the powerful part of you know our past is uh, it's behind us, but it's always there because it's who we are, and I think it's it makes us who we are, and I think that that's Alice's lesson, and that's the purpose of the flowers in her life, is that. She can be who she is at 29 and have the story she has at 29 because of every version of herself she's been ever since we met her when she was nine. And right from that beginning, when she's in the garden with her mum, her mum is muttering the language of flowers, of Australian native flowers, that Alice doesn't understand but remembers that even from that pivotal time in her life, Thornfield's language of Australian native flowers has always been An informing anchor throughout her life story that connects her to who she has been and who she will become. Mm -hmm. And, and like I was saying before, about I didn't want to book, I didn't want to write a book about violence. I wanted to write a story of one girl growing into a woman and how experiencing male perpetrated violence in her life and upheaval and Sadness, but also having an enormous capacity for imagination and magic and hope and love. How how that all shaped her life. And the flowers are a massive connector in
0: that. It sounds like one of the things you're also saying here is that in terms of having your story heard, it's, it's very much important to hear your own story, to actually make sense of it, come to terms with it yourself.
1: Yeah, for sure. Hmm. I... I think it's that old adage, you know, we can't, we can't necessarily know how to give anyone else love if we can't, like in a healthy way, unless we can learn how to fit lovingly with ourselves. And I think the same is true for our stories. And Helen Sullivan in the Sydney Morning Herald, she wrote a really incredibly special review of The Lost Flowers, which was, an, you know, for me as a writer, that was an amazing moment on its own, sort of separate to this, but the message that she wrote, the message that came from what she wrote in the review that really struck me was she said, you know, this book is sold around the world and it's not because of, it's, you know, it's not because of The Flowers. Like, everybody loves flowers and they're beautiful and they're evocative and they're used in this sense. But the point of what she was saying is that there is something in The Lost Flowers as a woman's story and as a human story that is connecting with people around the world. Mm. And um, it's that idea of story, I think, that people are feeling and connecting to. Not only women, either. Um, it's been really beautiful to meet male readers and to hear their thoughts on the novel. And really important, too, I think, to point out that this is not a man hating book. <laughs> there are really beautiful men in this book as well. Um, but male-perpetrated violence is an epidemic that's killing a woman a week, at least, in Australia.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't think there's any need to make excuses around the idea that there are still nice men out there. I think I think that that is often brought up by men to kind of distance themselves.
1: Yeah, but, for sure. I, I mean, I, the only reason why I mention yeah. it in this novel mm-hmm. is because, you know, other people... Uh, and, you know, some other reviewers have been like, oh, there's so many nasty men. And I was like, just to even the scale, um, the the book is about messy characters, men and women, and there are really gorgeous men in the novel. And, you know, like, June's a really complex woman. Reader reactions to June has been um, really interesting and um, sort of really lovely for me to be on the receiving end of as the writer because it's amazing to know that, the characters are so vivid that they evoke reactions in readers. Like people, some people hate June and some people love her and some people are like, oh, she's just so messy. Um, mm-hmm. and, it, and, and some people have said, you know, I got so frustrated with Alice because she made the wrong choices. And I think, you know, when we watch movies or read books and we get frustrated with characters for doing that, we get frustrated because it's the mess of being human, isn't it?
0: Hmm. I find that such a furphy of a critical argument that the so many, so many nasty men, oh, where are the where are the good men? I mean, are these people reading are these people reading action thrillers where we have a central protagonist who's held up as the good guy, who then goes and kills thirty bad guys. Oh, there's so many bad men in this. There's only one good man. It's it, it really it really sort of seeks to deny an argument just by subsuming it in a ton of its own bullshit. <laughs> I, I do want to take a, a bit of a branch off what you were just saying oh. there because there are there are some wonderful, and I'm going completely off script now because I realise that um, my booking in this studio is now over and someone could come and kick me out. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: there are so many wonderful characters, and you mentioned your om- omniscient narrator who is able to to explore from different perspectives, but really mm. following Alice. Are there characters that you felt you you shortchanged, or maybe that's not the right word, but that you would have liked to have, have taken off on a tangent and learnt more of their lives?
1: I mean, sure. Like, I absolutely had that thought, but I would have written a Russian tome. <laughs> like, it would have been a 600,000-word novel, like, truly, because this is something that I thought about deeply. Like, I could have branched off and gone into the backstories of so many characters, but, it, but it, it would have been the, the biggest doorstop that there ever was if I'd done that. And when, when considering how much story to go into for other characters, I had to really sit and, and ask myself, does this serve Alice's story? Because that's what it has been right from the beginning. Mm. Like, you know, in the opening chapters in the first third of the novel it is Alice and she is the main character and the main focus is on her. And if I started branching out and spending too much time away from her, it would lose a bit of that that tightness, that tension yeah. that keeps it all together. So um, absolutely for sure because I loved every character that appeared to me and that, and that I wrote into the story and that I saw a glimpse into their lives of. But it was a conscious choice to um, show as much as, as I felt I could without detracting from the fact that the story was the arc of Alice's life. Yeah. And it was through that arc that other characters were braided, but that I didn't get distracted by going off, um, you know, too much. And the same choice was there for the time jumps in the novel as well. I really wanted to trust the reader And trust that they would know that when the story has jumped forward in time, you know, and like where there's a a section um, made with an epigraph in different parts through the novel, that I was trusting the reader to know that anything that had happened in that time was not so dramatic that it needed page time.
0: That's it for another Great Conversation today featuring Holly Ringland. Holly's debut novel is The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart, and it's out now through HarperCollins. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Aura Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to hear more Great Conversations from Final Draft can I recommend just hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. If you're enjoying Great Conversations, could you give us a rating? It'll help other people discover Great Conversations, and it's a way to share these books. Uh, And this week, we've got a, a huge treat for subscribers. There are episodes dropping all over the week so many great books if you want to discover more uh more books writing and literary culture you can also follow us on twitter and facebook just look for at final draft to ser my name is andrew popel i am going to be back very soon with more great conversations more books more writing more literary culture from final draft i'll see you then